Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, and if you're a guest with us today, I do welcome you as well. We've been walking our way through the book of Mark, and getting toward the end, Mark chapter 14, about a month or a little bit more left of, uh, in this book. But I was thinking through this week and just how family structures have been changing all across the United States, and especially when it comes to electronics and how it's impacted even families. A while back, I had a conversation with my son, and his girls are twins are in eighth grade, and and then the question comes up: and, Okay, when do you give cell phones? When all of that stuff uh, that parents have to wrestle through as well. But you realize it's really revolutionized even the way the family works. When you think of internet and Snapchat and Facebook and Twitter, Instagram, Skype, we enjoy Skyping because of a daughter that's a long ways away. But because of electronics, we could probably argue that this is the most connected generation of all time. But I think if we're really honest, it's a challenge sometimes to navigate even the new rules of communication. For example... When was the last time you got a longhand letter? (laughs) Do they even teach that anymore in school? (laughs) I know my mom used to bemoan the fact that no one writes longhand anymore. But let me throw another piece out there. Do you know how to, young people, if you're in high school and early, early adult, do you know how to frustrate an older adult? Do this. When the older people call you on your cell phone, don't answer. But if they text you, immediately send a text back. (laughs) Now, some of you know what I'm talking about there, don't you? Oh, it's easier for young people to do the texting and the calling. It, It seems to be ignored. See, we are connected electronically more than ever before. And as a matter of fact, even to reveal my age as I was pondering it, uh, I grew up in an era where we had what's called the party line. Anybody remember back a number of years ago where, where our neighbors and us were on the same line and if we picked up the phone, our neighbors might be talking on the phone. Or, and that was, you know, you'd hear the click, but if you were talking on the phone, you'd hear this click and you knew two things. One, the neighbor wanted to use the phone or they wanted to listen in on your conversation. That was, that was the other two pieces there. But it kind of dates me a, a little bit as well. But there's a new reality in light of being connected so well. There's a new reality in that people are experiencing loneliness like never before. The stats would say that one out of five Americans, children or adults, experience loneliness today in a profound sense. Matter of fact, when you go into the teenage worlds and you begin to do some of the the looking at even with teenagers, there is a sense of loneliness that's growing. Depression and loneliness is is a major issue with teenagers in our day. This idea of loneliness, though, and yet we're connected. But today, I've got to switch it here a little bit because we come to a passage that reveals a level of loneliness, or maybe to say it different, aloneness, like never anybody we've ever experienced, that no one in this room has ever experienced. Uh, the text, turn with me to Mark 14, but this passage is sobering. Um, I think it's dark. Even He's taken place at night, but it's still a very dark text. 
And uh, we want to read and dig in a little bit here this morning. Look at verse 32 to begin with. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. Now Jesus was moving toward the cross, and he's going to the garden, and this was a part of his plan, and recognize that the night, you know, right before, a few hours earlier, he'd been in the upper room, and that place had been a kind of a secret as to where he was going to be. But here, this is a predictable place. Matter of fact, Luke points out that this was a customary place where Jesus would head. But the word Gethsemane literally means oil press. They believe that it was an olive garden. And that there was a press there that would have squeezed out the oil out of and make it made olive oil there. So understand, though, that as he moves forward here, as he's going to be betrayed here, we're not going to go into that today, but Judas would have known where Jesus was at. There was no hiding as he goes into the garden here. But Luke also reveals something that Mark doesn't. And it says that all the disciples came with him and that... He stopped the disciples, and then he tells them something as a group, and it says this, pray that they would not succumb to temptation. But then he leaves nine of them, or eight of them actually, Judas is gone at this point, and look at how we pick it up in verse 33 and 34. And he took with him Peter, James, and John. They were the ones that were closest to Jesus, okay? And began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. So he takes these close friends. He moves into the garden just a little bit farther, away from the other eight. But you'll notice a couple things here that don't take place. First of all, he doesn't conduct a prayer meeting here. He doesn't gather disciples. Hey, we're going to have a prayer meeting tonight before we go to the cross. doesn't do that. And there's some other things that we don't see as well. We, we see that, first of all, Jesus doesn't pray for his disciples like he did in the upper room. It's a very intimate conversation we'll see with his father. And we also notice one other thing. He doesn't ask the disciples, to pray for him as he's there in the garden. But it does tell us that Jesus was distressed, troubled, and sorrowful. Now, I understand that word literally can mean that first one of distress could be thrown into terror. It was very intense. It's a very intense world. That trouble, actually the word troubled could be he was depressed. Depression was setting in. And the third one, the sorrowful, even to death, it was an agony on top of that. Well, let's keep going here. Look at how it reads in verse 35. And going a little farther. So he pulls away from those three. And he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now the other Gospels tell us that he started on his knees and eventually as he went through this prayer time with his father, he sunk to the ground and his face is on the ground and he is weeping bitterly. This intense 
conversation with his father. And again, I think this, there is a weight that we're going to see that's on him that we could never experience or ever will. Now, what did he mean, Father, remove this cup from me? Now, there's some disagreement here. Now, most would agree that the way that Jesus reacted, it shows his humanity as well. It's the incarnation, fully God, but he was also man here in the anguish that he was going to be going through. But many people view this as a temptation of Jesus, that he was tempted to not finish his work. Matter of fact, in Passion, that movie, remember the scene where Satan supposedly has tempted him, that really is not shown in any of the Gospels. So most would say, scholars would say, that this really wasn't about a temptation, yet some people still believe it and think that Jesus maybe was afraid of death. And I go, ah, I don't think so. There's lots of people in scriptures that approach death and they did not fear it. But there's a second theory as well, and the way it's written is that maybe Jesus was probing his father and saying this, Father, is there any other way? To provide salvation other than the cross? Is there some other pathway we could take where we could offer salvation to mankind? And it's possible that that might be a part of it, but I think there's more than that. We're going to come back to that issue later. Look what he finds. Look at verse 37. Keep going here. And he came and found them. So he stops praying. And he came and found them sleeping, the three. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So he reminds his three closest friends. And he tells them, guys, watch and pray that you don't be tempted. Now, what's the temptation here? Potential for that. I, I think the context is this. Remember earlier in the night, now Mark, we didn't cover this, but Luke records this, is there was a debate in that upper room. And the debate was this. Who was going to be greatest again? Who was going to be, when the kingdom came, who was going to be in charge with Jesus? See, they still believed that it was going to be an earthly kingdom. And who was going to have the places of honor and have power? Then a little bit later, remember Peter rebukes Jesus when Jesus pointed out he's going to die. Peter goes, no way, we're not going to let you. And then on top of that, just, no, we didn't cover it, we missed it, we skipped it actually, and it's going to come in a couple weeks. Peter asserts that, I will never leave you, Jesus. And Jesus tells him, eh, that's not true, Peter. But I think when you summarize those three events, what you find is that I think there was a temptation there that they were going to look at Jesus and the point where he was going to get arrested, there's a temptation of let's rescue Jesus. Let's keep him from the cross. I think that really could have been a part of it. But I think there's a second one as well that Jesus understood because once he laid on that cross, when he died, would his disciples scatter? And basically come to a place where we've been following this guy for three years and now he's dead and that was really worthless to do that. And you go, is that the temptation? 
And I think it very well could be. But look how Christ responds to them. Always the teacher. Look at verse 38. And he tells them again, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then he says this, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, I think that statement gives us an application which we need to understand and and hold on to. If you're following along in the bulletin outline, I said it this way, something to remember. Spiritual desires will never be realized without spiritual power. See, I think we can want it. The disciples wanted to stay awake. They didn't have any power. And they didn't pray. Maybe even for that power to even stay awake. See, it reminds us that prayer is critical. But even at times as we pray, for example, James 4 says this, we ask and do not receive because we ask with wrong motives. We ask out of selfishness. But i gotta, I got to point a piece here out. There's something unique, unique here because it's a little bit more complex. You notice he doesn't tell them to pray to keep from sinning. He tells them to pray so that they wouldn't enter into temptation, which is not sin. Do you catch the difference there? See, at times I think we, we go to the Father and we say, Father, keep me from that sin. Watch my tongue. We're, we're praying that we do not sin. And he warns them and tells them here, pray that you would actually not be tempted. And you go, how do you get to that point? I would say this, you can't try to get to that point. There must be power from the Holy Spirit that's given to us in order for that to take place. We must have power to get to a place where things don't become tempting even anymore. See, if Jesus, understand this, if Jesus had to draw on the Father for power to go to the cross, how much more then do we need to spend time praying and asking, God, would you give us power? We have spiritual desires, but we need your power to make them happen and to be fruitful. We need to develop a habit of prayer. And and if you're a teenager here today, a young adult, understand this. Satan wants nothing more to just want you to sit and be tempted all the time. And he wants to whisper in your ear, give in, give in. And begin to develop a habit of prayer to go to the Father before temptation even comes. But let me keep going. Look at verse 39. And again he went away. And he prayed, saying the same words. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. You see, Jesus had gone back and prayed the very same thing. And understand, in all the other passages, there's this place where Jesus goes, Abba, Father, is there any way? Take this cop away. Remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will. He acknowledges that he's submitting to his Father. But there's this phrase, as the other authors reveal as well, this idea of Abba, Father. It's an intimate phrase that literally means Daddy. Father, Dad. 
take this cup away. Now, I, I have to admit, when I was growing up, I didn't have a particularly deep relationship with my father. My dad struggled pretty deeply with relating to all of the kids in the family. So the statement is, I don't understand it some at times, but you know, as a father, I've tried to do it different with my kids in terms of intimacy and talking with them. But understand the picture here is such an intimate request because he knew, understand, as he asked his father, his dad, to take this cup away, you understand, what was, he knew something and he, what he knew is that his father eventually would turn his back on him. And why would he go to a father where we know he's going to turn his back and not respond? A rich, deep, intimate request, and yet knowing, Father, I'm going to follow your will. It's not going to be my will. Do we catch, though, the agony that he's in at this point in the garden? See, I don't believe that we really understand it, that there was a loneliness that, frankly, the disciples couldn't have filled. There's a loneliness that, that we never could experience. And it has to do, understand, the loneliness with this issue about the cup. And I want to show you what that really cup means. From actually Old Testament all the way to Revelation, there's an understanding of what the cup of, of the Father or of God really means. And I want to put a couple verses on the screen. Look at Isaiah 51, 17. It says, Rouse yourself, rouse yourself, arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger. The chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. Interesting phrase, isn't it? Look at Jeremiah 25, 17. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and its officials, to make them a desolation, a waste, a hissing, and a curse at this day. He was forcing them to drink the cup so that they would be cursed. So that they would, there would be desolation, that they would feel God's anger and his wrath. That cup over and over again speaks to the wrath and the anger of God toward unrighteousness and sin. It's a cup that's poured out for anybody that's unrighteous that stands before God whether you're Jew or Gentile. And again, it goes from Old Testament all the way to Revelation. And the Lord, understand, Jesus is dreading drinking of that cup. That was God's wrath and judgment. Do you catch what's happening here? He is beginning to feel the weight of people's sin upon his shoulders. He's getting ready to go to the cross and it's already coming down on him. And he knows, you know what? He knows his friends are going to abandon him. He already knows that. But the more disconcerting thing for him is he's bearing the weight of sin. He knew that he was going to be offered up to death to appease God's wrath and justice, to bear the wrath of God. 
And because of that, it meant aloneness, loneliness. He knew that his Abba father, his dad, would allow him to take the weight alone. His father would break fellowship, break relationship with him. And they had loved each other for all time, forever. Now, how how do you apply this? And you go, okay, how does this apply to us? Well, let me push an illustration with you this morning. What if we were assigned an angel at birth, and this angel had a little recording device? And every time we sin, the moment we came out of the womb, this little angel started recording every little outward sin that we do and snapped a little picture of it. And what if this angel had also the ability to read our mind where every time we had a thought, an anger, we were lustful, whatever, the thinking part of when we sin, that that angel knew it and he would record and snap a picture of what that was. And what if that angel recorded every time that we demonstrated an independence, a sense of autonomy? We don't need God. We're just going to push God away. We're going to ignore him. What if an angel recorded every time we did that? And what if every one of those recorded events was represented by one brick? And and what if somebody, that angel told somebody, I want you to carry the bricks of all of the sins that are in here and begin to bring them into this room. What would happen? See, I, I think we would be overwhelmed by the amount of bricks that each of us would have. See, I think there's a hard truth. Let me fill in that blank for you. It really is easy to forget about the weight of our own sin. Now, I can't help but wonder, and I believe God actually gives grace in this area. Because I think if the bricks that represented our own sin, if we had to see them and carry them, I don't think we could even bear it wheelbarrow after wheelbarrow, truck after truck would be loaded up dumping here in the parking lot for my sin. See, we see some of the, the challenges of that, and you understand what's happening is that Jesus is beginning to feel those bricks being put on him. We don't like our bricks. But in order to be set free from the bricks, from our bricks of sin, we got to take that brick and we got to give it to Jesus. That's what repentance is. That's what's bowing before Him and saying, God, you died. Your son died for me. He took my sin and He put it on His shoulders. And each brick of my sin went on the back of Jesus. And he's feeling it in the weight of the garden right now. Other 
text cells, there was droplets of blood that were falling from his face. The weight was overwhelming him. He was beginning to be crushed for our iniquity. He was beginning to experience the wrath of God. And every little brick that was being put on him was bringing him closer and closer to the cross and his death. So when we read the words, the wages of sin is death, folks, that is our bricks, our sins. See, these words were, I think, when we look at the Garden of Gethsemane, we realize that's, in light of that, that's really the connection. The wages of sin is death, but it was Christ's death. And again, if God revealed the depth of our bricks accumulated over the years, I'm not sure that we could handle it. And Jesus had to do this for the whole world. So that God would provide a path, and it was the only path that would lead to restore a relationship with the Father. And God says, it's the only way. But here's the the, the tension, I think, in the world. Uh, I, I got another brick, and it says GW on it. It stands for this, good works. And what we want to do is we got our sins here, but we just go, as long as I got enough bricks to balance it out and just a few more good works than sins, we think we're okay. And Jesus shot that down, that view. said, no, one sin, you're guilty. You can't balance out works of righteousness, hoping that someday that he'll get, they'll, they'll balance out the bad bricks. It just doesn't work that way. He said, absolutely not. So how do we apply this then even more? You know, Wednesday night, it was a really hard night for me, to be honest with you. And it really wasn't the debate some of you watched the debate, probably had a hard night with that, watching that as well. But as after the debate, I spent a couple hours on the sermon. And it was during that study that there was just a couple of aha moments really for me. And, and one of them really led to some deep conviction. But the first aha was this. There was a sadness that came over me of going, how many followers of Christ are throwing stones at each other? at other believers during this period because of who they support. And they might not be big stones, but but here's the challenge. One of those little stones throwing it at people for whatever reason actually turns it into a brick. Do we catch that? But that wasn't, I think, the hardest thing for me as I was, I was pondering through the night. And I knew I was going to come down with this illustration, but, but here's the problem. Because we, one of the challenges in this election right now, and I'll put it this way, we're in a season where we can see the bricks of sin publicly in our candidates. It's just out there this year. More than ever. I think we have to admit that. But here's where we ended up sliding to a really bad theology. 
And the theology says this, is that we look at their bricks, their sin, and we rate them as worse than our sin. Don't we? Those are batter bricks. Wrong Latin, okay. And and here's, here's what happens. Our flesh, we succumb to temptation so quickly, but our flesh pulls us to look at people, even our politicians. And you know what? In the back of our mind as Christians, I think we label them. And, and here's the deal. We don't call them deplorables. We call them unredeemables. Because we look at their character and we go, you know what, I don't think God can redeem them. And we label, label them as unredeemables. And you go, here's the problem. It's really bad theology. God can redeem them anytime he wants. And why is my bricks really any different than their bricks? We could stop here and go away feeling really guilty, couldn't we? Let me keep going. There's something in the Gospel of Mark that Mark doesn't tell us that Luke reveals in the midst of this agony that Jesus is in, as he was beginning to bear the weight of the wrath of God, the Father still loved him and actually sent an angel. Luke reveals he sent an angel to minister to him during that time. See, the Heavenly Father, even though he broke relationship, he never stopped loving him. And he sent an angel to give him power. To give him power Why? To finish the work that needed to be done. It was help to give to to have a new resolve to go to the cross for us. And I think we see that beginning in verse 41. Look how it reads. He comes up out of that that prayer time and he's been in agony, but then he he gets up in 41 and he came to the third time. He goes back to those three and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. Translated, sleepyheads, get up. Get going. And look what he tells them. The Son of Man, there's a new resolve. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And you understand that the next text, Judas is coming down. They're coming up the mountain to get him. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The Father gave him a resolve that he knew he had to follow through and do his Father's will. And he had to take, in doing that, he took every brick was becoming harder and harder, but he knew he had to take those bricks to the cross. And that journey to the cross, folks, he had to walk alone that next day or when sun up, when it came and all of a sudden the trial and the beating and everything that took place, you understand, he was alone. His father didn't give him any more help. He had to feel the weight of our sin on his shoulders. The father had to forsake him. The disciples are going to scatter, stand on the fringes watching. 
Do you understand the weight and the loneliness that Jesus had to go through? And I can say this again, we never could handle that. But there's one truth that jumped out of me from one of the sources. It's just not from me. It's not original to me. And I just, as I read it, I go, oh, this is so true. The, the great truth in your notes. The measure of Christ's agony at Gethsemane equals the measure of the love of God for sinners, which caused him to die that we might live. See, taking the wrath because of our many sinful bricks was an act of love. Taking the wrath of God, drinking of that cup, that was, he, that was an act of love. And it far surpassed all the sins even that we committed of the world. See, and the result is that God the Father offers people to take their bricks and put it on his son. To place it on the son, his son's body once and for all. And Jesus doesn't give back the bricks. And, and I've, I've, here's another grace. My bricks keep coming. And you realize it, it heads over to the cross. As they keep coming. But he doesn't condemn me no more. See, do we fathom the love of God for us to send his son into the world to take this kind of weight? Now here's, I, th I think here's a realization. There might be a few people in here this morning where you've never taken your bricks and you've never transferred them on to Jesus. Maybe you don't realize the, the amount of sin that you have. But because of your sin, wrath is demanded by God. But he invites you to take your sin, it's called repentance, and to turn and to carry them and to give them to Jesus. And if you've never done that, I would invite you to do that today. Talk to somebody here. Talk to one of the worship team, myself, one of the elders. Don't let this day go by without giving your bricks to Jesus. But there's another piece I think here as well, because some of us, yeah, we've given our bricks and, and he's holding on to them, but we kind of sneak over to Jesus and we get to try to pull some of those bricks back, some of the ones that we deemed really terrible. And he's fighting us for it. Now, he's not going to give it back. But we keep wanting it back. And we, we listen to Satan who whispers in our ears going, take the bricks back. Live in bondage. And Jesus is going, no, they're my bricks now. Do you understand? As we take our bricks and we give them to Jesus, all of a sudden it opens up freedom for us in ways that we never can really imagine the freedom from the curse of sin. The freedom from the weight and even sometimes the consequences of sin. And the freedom now to know Him. The freedom to love Him. The freedom to serve Him. The freedom to love other people. Because our bricks are transferred onto Him. We're no longer weighted down by them. Do we catch the weight in this garden 
of what Jesus was doing for us. He was feeling our sins and he knew he had to take his father's, the cup, his wrath, judgment, and he had to bear it and be that final sacrifice for us. I want to play a song. We had some technical difficulties in the first service. We're going to try to pull it up here. So Nancy, you want to try to play that? You catch those last words, the, the poison in the cup. You understand that was intended for us. And that was the cup that in his flesh, his humanity, he was wrestling with. But he drank it so we didn't have to drink it. Let's stand and pray.